Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Daniel Peters to the show. Dr. Peters, also known as Dr. Dan, is a licensed psychologist who, for over 20 years, has been passionate about the assessment and treatment of children, adolescents, and families. He specializes in overcoming anxiety, learning differences such as dyslexia, and issues related to giftedness and twice exceptionality. He is co-founder and executive director of the Summit Center and co-founder of Parent Footprint. He is also co-founder of Camp Summit, a summer camp for gifted youth. He has received a number of awards and recognitions for his work. Today, we will learn more about his academic journey and his passion for helping twice exceptional and gifted people. Dr. Peters, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Brad. I'm looking forward to this. I am looking forward to it as well. And uh, usually, if you've seen some of our uh, podcasts in the past, we love talking about um, you, where you've been, your academic journey, what you're up to now, your projects, and and your business in this case. Uh, before we get started, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, born and raised in Southern California, and um, ventured up a large extended family in Southern California on both sides of my family. And, um, you know, we traveled a bunch, but it was like Southern California was sort of center of the universe as uh, as you hear about for people who live down there and, and other places too. And then uh, went up to college up to Northern California uh, to UC Davis and then um, absolutely fell in love with Northern California where uh, I've been ever since uh, my wife and I met uh, in college and um, she's from Northern California and all my great friends ended up being from Northern California. So um, this became home after doing different training uh training years in different places like Ohio and such. And um, what else? Um, growing up, something that was really important to me, uh, sports was very important to me. Uh, competitive tennis became um, my my focus and passion for a long time. And um, and also, I think what formed, what ended up forming a bit of my career is I always liked working with kids. So I worked at summer camps. I taught tennis. Um, I was just involved in kids and groups quite a bit. And, um, you know, later looking back, I could see the road of um, working with kids and families as well. Well, I, it's obvious when I did all the research on you and, and all of your publications, uh, quite passionate uh, about helping adolescents, youths and, and even families and, and adults. Uh, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But before we do, and before I forget to ask you, uh, were you able to attend any of the talks at the Executive Function Online Summit over the weekend? Actually, I didn't. I usually, uh, you know, go back and uh, view them. And uh, it's uh, Seth Perler puts on an amazing um, lineup and um, with amazing colleagues. So yes, not yet, but it's on my. Uh, I've got the. I've got the link. How about you? I, I was able to look at a few of them. I wasn't attending in person live while they were doing it. But uh, as you mentioned, you can go back and take a look at some of the talks as well. And I just found it fascinating. And the reason that I saw that is you you posted that um, on your social media, letting everybody know that, hey, if you're interested in these topics, it's free. Go ahead and join. I, I really loved uh, your proactiveness uh, sharing that with everybody on online as well. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences. For example, where did you attend and at what point did you know you wanted to start a career in psychology? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is kind of a funny story that I share with um, with clients at when relevant um, and in talks. So I, I, um, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And um, when I was in high school, I guess I think college counseling started to become a thing. And I have these older cousins. And my parents said, yeah, we're going to go to a college counselor in L.A. They're the ones that your cousins went to. They helped them think about what they want to do, where they wanted to go to college. So I so I did this um, and I took all these tests. You know, now I know what these tests were that I didn't know what these tests were. And I remember going into this 
you know, office in this big building in LA. And it just seemed so, um, we lived outside of LA, so we weren't in LA and it seemed all kind of, I don't know, seemed a little overwhelming to me, take all these tests, come back. And I remember sitting there and he says, okay, got your plan. And this wasn't where I was going to go to college. This is like my plan. And, um, and so it said, you're going to uh, be a business major. You're going to be a Spanish minor. You're going to spend your third year in a Spanish-speaking country abroad to become fluent. And then you're going to go to law school and you're going to be a bilingual attorney. And this was at the time when there was a lot of push um, because of uh, Spanish-speaking. The, the population was just booming with Spanish-speaking individuals. And it was like, hey, this is really important. So I remember leaving the office thinking huh, you know, like semi-consciously, I, I remember thinking like not one thing resonated with me, not even one thing. And that, um, and that I, I remember thinking like, oh, I guess, well, I guess it's kind of like what men do. I think, I guess like men are, you know, they're in business and then they become attorneys. And my dad was an optometrist who's had his own business still forever. So I, I like, that was my model of a guy working. Um, so I left. Independently, I ended up at UC Davis. Um, I visited a couple older friends there. One was on the tennis team. I was wanting to play tennis. I fell in love with just this juxtaposition of Southern California to farmland in Northern California. Just fell in love with it. Ended up there. We go back to visit this guy because there's a follow-up visit included, I guess, in the package. So this is the end of my freshman year. And he says, Oh, so I, what I ended up majoring is rhetoric and communications. I think I'd already signed up for that. I, business didn't really interest me. I don't know what happened there. So he's come, he comes back and said, how was your first year? And I said, actually, I had a really good first year. He said, so what, what classes did you like the most? And I thought about it. And I said, actually, psychology were the, was the most interesting classes to me. And I ended up taking one every quarter. He said, what classes did you do the best in? I thought about it. I'm like, oh, my only A's were in psychology. <laughs> and he said, you ever thought about being a psychologist? Mm -hmm. This is where all the money, this is, this is where he did his job. And I said, no, he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back at the beginning of fall. I want you to change your major to psychology. I want you to um, work in a lab to start getting lab experience. And I want you to work in a group home to get practical experience. And it was like, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it just, it clicked. So when I think, when I talk to parents and tell clients who are wondering, it's like, what speaks to you? It's like, there's these simple questions. And I think a lot of times we over uh, complicate things. Well, it's a good summary. That's a, a fascinating story. And it's always fun to hear that because, you know, vast majority of time, you don't end up in the same area that your high school, and I should clarify, your high school guidance counselor, you know, predicts that you you will be good at or you would love. And so, okay. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's interesting. So did you graduate with a BA or a BS or what? I graduated what was... with a BA. Um, okay. science was never, um, something that came naturally to me. Um, so I was definitely drawn more towards the BA and then I was towards the end of it. And, um, I'm like, okay, what do you do now? Cause then you quickly realize with a psychology degree, you really can't do, well, you can do stuff, but it's really hard to like future make a living unless you do some more in the field uh, with education. So I, there was a newer program at a school, a sports psychology program. And this is when sports psychology was really starting to come up and being a former athlete and really reading a lot of those sports psychology books. I'm like, this is interesting. So I immediately um, went into um, it was John F. Kennedy University. It's actually just changed in Northern California here. And I have to say, I guess we might want to come back to this, but there's always this question, like, do you get life experience or do you go straight into school? Mm -hmm. I often tell people, I think it's good to get a little life experience. Um, um, I went straight in and I was sports psychology major and a clinical psychology minor. And what I slowly found, I ended up two quarters there, then I'll say what happened, was I liked my sports psychology class. I loved my clinical psychology classes. Every time I wanted to get clinical in my sports psychology classes, they said, no, that's not for a sports psychologist. That's when you refer out. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I like, this is what I want to do. I was working for, in a practice for um, uh, someone who had mentored me for a while. And he's like, Dan, you want to be a clinical psychologist? 
you, I, you need to get your doctorate in clinical psychology. Now, this the school that I left ended up having a doctoral uh, program in clinical psychology. They didn't at the time. So then I transferred uh, in the spring. It was the last year that uh, the school called, it was called Pacific Graduate School of Psychology in Palo Alto. It's now called Palo Alto University. Mm-hmm. Um, so I transferred there, fortunately. At the time, I was able to slide right in. And then that's where I did my, uh, my uh, doctorate. So was it a terminal master's and then you switched to another school or did you go to one school for your, your master's and your doctorate? One school. So they just gave you the master's was just a certificate that you got sure. along the way once you met the, the requirements. Okay. All right. And what were some of your reasons for selecting that school? You mentioned, obviously, the major clinical psychology uh, came into play. What were some other reasons why you selected that school versus a different one? Well, I actually feel I got sort of lucky. Um, there were, um, I wanted to stay in the area at this point. I had done, um, well, no, I'm fast forwarding. I, I wanted I wanted to stay in the area. I really liked um, Northern, Northern California. I didn't, I, I was very, um, you know, achievement oriented at the time. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to stay on track. And so, that there was a few other professional schools. I know that, you know, with the um, Berkeley, the other main universities around here and other, like you had to stay on their admission cycle. So part mm-hmm. of it was like, how do I keep going? And um, I had learned about PGSP from a few different people. And I talked to the admissions uh, director and I really liked him. I went down to visit the school and he says, actually, we are, op- we were, t- we have, we take a small group for spring enrollment. And so I just liked what I saw and the timing worked out. So I feel fortunate, um, you know, I, in hindsight, I don't think I gave it as ton of thought as I would if I was probably five years older. <laughs> so if you, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, what kind of advice would you give to those who are seeking a graduate degree? I, I know that you can differentiate between a psychology program and a school. And there are differences there. You don't, you know, one might be very strong with a program, but the school may not be known, well known in a certain area. So any, any advice that you have for those students mm-hmm. who are seeking a graduate degree in, in psychology? Yeah, you know, actually, you're triggering a few things um, for me. Now thinking back at the school. Um, so at the time, here's another reason I think I chose it. At the time, in California, the PsyD was a newer degree and not seen by a lot of places to have the same equity in terms of training and expertise as a PhD. Now, mm-hmm. that is not the case, but this was 20 plus years ago, right? 24 plus years ago. Um, and on the East Coast, PsyDs were a thing, but we didn't know that out here and no one cared, PsyD or PhD. And the PhDs were starting to move towards much more of a, you know, scientist practitioner model and more towards science, more towards university-based teaching. So at the time, PGSP was holding firm to the scientist practitioner model and some of the other professional schools were more, if you want to be a clinician, um, you need to be a PsyD and you can't go the PhD route. PGSP was saying, no, 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 you're going to do both and we're going to hold on to our degree and we're not um, they were in this battle with accreditation, and I can't remember if they were in the process of getting accredited or they were accredited and they were in a long battle to not go PsyD and to hold on to the PhD. Ultimately, um, they have been, and they they have been APA accredited for some time. But when I was there, there was a lot of, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Can we keep the PhD? So I guess, so one thing is to say now, now is if you want to be a clinician, I strongly suggest the PsyD degree at our center, um, at least 50, if not more percent of our practitioners are PsyDs. And you can't tell the difference from any of the PhDs or PsyDs in terms of the, you know, like their training and their quality of work. And in many cases, the PsyD programs get more direct training in clinical work because you're spending less time on research. Um, so if you want to do research and you like research, I think the PhD is a great degree. If um, So I, what I recommend to folks is like, what do you want to do? Does that school have what you want to do by degree and by specialty? And um, is it in a place where you want to live for four or five, six years? Mm-hmm. And what do you hear about it? 
Mm-hmm. And I, you know, Brad, I've always been a firm believer and I'm not even going to go as far as like, is it nice to have an accredited university? Well, it is because it just opens some doors easier. Um, the other thing I think accreditation gives you is more security, more insurance, because there's more of a governing body at play. But I still am a firm believer if you work really hard and you get good training and you're good at what you do, you are going to be able to forge your way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I tell people not to get caught up in the school, in the prestige, you know, in all of that stuff, which is nice. It feels nice. But to, to look deep and to see, like, what can you do in this place? Very good advice. Thank you for summarizing that. Um, I was going to ask you another question regarding APA accreditation. And what I'm finding, you know, my my mom is a licensed psychologist. And so I grew up with a a licensed uh, psychologist as a mother and an English uh, teacher. So imagine that I'm (laughs) bombarded two different ways growing up. I I really enjoyed it now that I look back. And uh, but back in the day, everybody was so focused on you have to attend an APA accredited school. You have to, because it, it, to your point, it opens up more um, um, avenues through which you can apply for different types of jobs. However, nowadays, after talking with more and more of my guests on the podcast, that isn't necessarily the case. It really depends on what do you want to do after you graduate? Where do you see yourself? And do you want to open up a business? Do you want to stay in the academic field? What do you want to do? That would help determine whether or not you should you should go for an APA accredited school. So any other mm-hmm. reasons why you should or shouldn't concern yourself with APA accreditation? I think you hit them. Yeah, okay. I think right there. Okay. Uh, and so when did you graduate with your doctorate degree then? What uh, year, 1998. Okay. So 98, um, what did you do between 98 and 2009 when you co-founded the Summit Center? So give me, I looked at your timeline and and that's the difference. I didn't really find much uh, what you were doing between those two. Yeah, so that um, that 10-ish years felt like, that felt like a long time. So I... um, So what was I doing? So uh, 1998 graduated, then... um, I was working in a private practice for uh, this with this mentor of mine and thinking I would go straight into private practice. Um, it's something that I always imagined I would do. And I think part of that was the influence of um, just different people I've got to know. And I liked the idea of private practice, seeing my dad have a private optometric practice for years. I just, I felt like that was what I was going to do. So I got into graduated. Now I'm in the suburban town in a private practice. And I immediately felt isolated and unprepared. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, you know, I've done all, I have all this stuff coming at me and my mentor, cause I was a psych assistant, a psychologist. He was really busy, excellent psychologist. He's running his own practice. He had, you know, several kids of his own. Like he had his whole life and, you know, I got my one hour week of supervision and trying to get him in the lunchroom while we're eating a piece of pizza and I actually just felt totally overwhelmed. I'm like, I'm just not ready for this. And I'm not sure if this is what I want, at least right now. I then did a postdoc um, up at Shasta County Mental Health in the North State. Um, had um, I was also married about that time. And my um, wife, sister, and brother-in-law and little kids lived up there. So it was a way to be um, with family, but um, also even though we were away from the Bay Area. And so I got great training there in a, in a county mental health set, a child, uh, child unit. So great training all the way around. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to do private practice. I want to work for an organization. I loved working in the community. I loved working with multidisciplines, um, you know, social workers. Um, I mean, you name it, you just, you know, had, you had the whole community-based wor- um, work. And so I applied and got my first real job in Napa at a nonprofit that was a multi-service agency, foster care, clinical work, Medi-Cal clinical work, dis, uh, development of disabled adults, uh, residential treatment, uh, day treatment for youth, and really found a mentor there. The executive director had been doing it for decades, um, small town. We moved there um, and really had a wonderful experience. 
the challenges for those of you who know with nonprofits, you can't get paid. You don't you don't get paid that much. Northern California, a very expensive place to be. Um, so my the executive director, my new mentor, said, "Hey, I've had a one day a week private practice for years. That's how I subsidize my income. I encourage you to do the same." So then I started a private practice in town, and it felt right. It made sense. Um, I started as their first paid staff psychologist. It was a large agency of social workers, licensed clinical social workers, and uh, MSWs and um, MFTs, now LMFTs. Um, and they had contracted people to do testing. And so he's like, it's time. We have Medi-Cal dollars. I'm investing in you. And uh, I remember meeting. So he hired me. He said that. He introduced me to the CFO, this wonderful British woman. And he said, uh, Jill, this is Dan. He's our new psychologist. And she looked at me and it was at a Victorian. And she says, well, I don't know where we're going to get the money for him. And she walked up the stairs. That, I was like, hmm, there's a vote of confidence. Just moving my, ourselves over there. Um, so I stayed there. And then shortly after the clinic director left and like six months in of the, of the clinic, the outpatient clinic, and it didn't really work. I thought I was going to work for him. I let it turned out I was working, going to work for someone under him. And then so he said to me, I'm like, who's going to be the director? And he said, well, if you don't want it, I'm hiring someone else. And now I'm in my late 20s, 29, 829, thinking, how am I going to run a clinic of 20 people, Medi-Cal from, and uh, so what I did, but I'm like, I don't want anyone else to, I don't want to work for someone else again, like the experience I had. So I said to the leadership team, there was a psychiatrist who'd been there forever, and there was another person. Oh, it was Alan. And I said, how about the three of us form a leadership team for a few months, and we jointly lead this together, um, and then I'll let you know when I'm ready. And we did that for about three months, and then I said, okay, and I stepped into being the clinical director while also being, as, as still this day, a practitioner. Um, so it's both you know, director, practitioner. And I just got so much experience. Um, and so I was working there, doing testing, doing therapy, learning about budgets, learning about Medi-Cal, learning about audits, quality assurance, working with the community, which I really loved, all the other nonprofits. And then we moved back. And now I'm commuting an hour. We have three kids, uh, eventually three kids under four. And my wife is a nurse working the swing shift. And it was like, Oh, and, and my responsibilities were just growing and growing and growing. Um, and I felt I needed to make a change. I needed to, for a lot of different financial reasons and for us to have some more stability in our house and our kids weren't sleeping through the night. Anyways, this is a long winded, but what did I end up doing? So I ended up going back to the private practice because I wanted group practice with the guy that I left. We developed a little center. And what I wanted was to create the nonprofit collaboration with the um, private ability to pay your bills with less bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, so I was there for five years while I still consulted with the, the agency and I ended up being on their board. I like stayed involved because it was really important to me with the organization. And then eventually after there was a five-year contract with that one, I fell into this idea of giftedness. I fell into this idea of twice exceptionality. I was looking for a change. I knew that there was something in my life. It, it, something was missing professionally. And all of these forces came together to create Summit Center, which was my private practice merging with our co-founder and creating a center. That's a lot. I just, I didn't, I just you did. Time. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, had to, I had to remember like two or three follow-up questions. I probably <laughs> remember one or two of them. One of them being... You know, from the very beginning uh, of our discussion, you, you're highly competitive in sports. And so part of me was thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe you went into sports psychology for a while. And that isn't the case, even though could you see yourself doing that or incorporating that um, now? Probably not now, but back then. Why did well, you, you know, once going... I left it, no, yeah. I, I liked the clip. I just liked the clinical okay. work and, and where I appreciate um and and at sports psychology, I believe, has evolved because I've been away from it in terms of maybe the parameters. But it was a lot about, you know, peak performance, managing anxiety. Um, 
but all the trauma, the depression, the anxiety, you only could touch it as it related to the sports psychology realm. So no, I, I never thought about going back to it. Okay. Well, that's a good summary. Um, we, we do have on our website kind of a summary of each of them, and you're exactly right. It ha- all of these areas have evolved throughout the years, and uh, even into business psychology. Back then, that didn't even exist, and yeah. so you know a lot of them didn't even exist back then. So now, in July, and you gave us kind of how it led up to um, you know creating Summit Center, I'm going to share my screen because you did mention... Um, you should be able to see the screen with all of the about team on it. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Okay. And as you mentioned, you know, if you're glancing through, we have some PhDs, we have a lot of PsyDs. So it's a good combination of, of that as well as a master of education as well. So a good variety of PsyDs, PhDs, uh, MAs, EDDs, um, a, a, a wide variety. And what I liked about the Summit Center compared to some others out there you are almost taking more of a holistic approach and you're looking at some of the different ways that you can help your clients. And not only that, but you have multiple locations. And I assume the first one was the Walnut Creek and then you expanded to the other two later on. So tell us a little bit more about Summit Center. Yeah, you know, um, it's it's just like looking at all those wonderful faces it's like it's hard to believe i mean it literally started as this idea of um i met susan daniels um well i fell into a get through a a professional who was a parent who um from napa who had these gifted kids and the school district highly gifted the school districts weren't understanding their needs nor the related mental health issues that can go with it especially if their needs aren't being met and um, asked me if I wanted to be, um, said we were looking for, uh, and she's a wonderful community activist, social worker. So she's like, we're flying a guy out from Kentucky who's an expert in giftedness, a psychologist, and we want a local expert. Would you be willing, uh, are you interested? Do you know anything about gifted? And I thought, well, yeah, those are gifted. Gifted was all the tests I was asked to take, then at classes I never got into, but all my kid, all my friends were in those classes. That's all I know about giftedness. And um and so she said, well, he's coming and would you like to train with him? I just intuitively swiped my schedule clean for like three days. And I met Ed Amond, who um, has became a friend and is a friend and colleague. And I became like just so intrigued with giftedness and how you just learning more, reading all the books, um, then learning about twice exceptionality, gifted and ADD and autism spectrum and dyslexia and realizing all the kids that I had over the years and um, and how we're only focused on pathologizing and diagnosing and what's wrong with you. And all through the years, I had this problem with, you, you know, positive psychology started to happen, which was great because I had this problem with how is it that we tell people what's wrong with them and expect them to quote, get better and feel better about themselves? Like, how is it that we write reports that basically, you know, say all of their weaknesses, all of their deficits, and then all of their diagnoses. And oh, by the way, um, has above average intelligence, like, oh, well. And so um, all this coalesced for me. And I started going to all the giftedness conferences, the the national ones, the, um, the state ones. And then at my first state one, California Association for Gifted, I met Susan Daniels, our co-founder, who's an educational psychologist, specialized in giftedness, education, uh, creativity. And I went to her talk on overexcitabilities because I was reading about overexcitabilities and how is overexcitability different from diagnoses. And I went to the booth of Great Potential Press where Ed said, hey, here's my mentor and my co-author and my publisher, Jim Webb introduce yourself because he wants to know all the people who are interested. So I said, Hey, Jim, I'm Dan. Ed told me, say hello. He said, Oh, you should meet Susan. And Susan was the talk I just went to. We sat down for two and a half hours and it was the beginning of visioning a summit center. Mm -hmm. So again, what I'll tell people listening and looking back, you know, hindsight is like showing up and meeting people is, has been the key to so much of the creativity and the evolution of things that I've been fortunate to be a, a part of is just being a part of things and meeting people and sh- talking to people who you're interested in. So all this is to say, we wanted to create a place, Brad, where people it's strength-based. It's about helping people 
realize their developmental potential. And yeah, we need to deal with diagnoses and with challenges, but it's a lens by which we're focusing on, you know, what's right with you while we're figuring out the weakness profile. And when you come up with a support plan, like how do we emphasize the strengths, um, those pre-vocational things that you're doing, you're, you know, you have, you're inventing things, you're having, you're not little entrepreneur with your lemonade stand. Um, while also it's like, yeah, we need to help you with your executive functioning and we need to figure out a way for you to learn how to read and write better. Um, and so it started with myself, a psych assistant, um, and then, and Susan, it was three of us. It was, I went from never having my own office. I always shared an office with someone two days a week to, we have the suite that we left a couple doors down and then we got back a couple years ago. Once we left it, um, there were four offices and. And then we took on another psych assistant and she, um, she says, she remembers saying, I said like, oh my gosh, not only do I have one office, we have four offices. How are we ever going to fill it? And what she tells the staff when we go around and say, how long have you been here? She says, yeah, my first day of work, I went home because we had no clients. <laughs> and so it's all been organic. So, you know, 11 plus years later, Susan and I talked about it for a year or two before it happened, but then it's, it's been organic meeting people, like-minded people at conferences locally, and it just grew. There wasn't a business plan. I'm going to share this, the site again, very good story. Uh, and that brings up a couple pieces of advice that uh, I, I think I'm hearing a theme whenever I'm talking to our guests is networking is very important going out meeting different people if you're interested in a certain area go out and meet those people if you're interested in somebody's work and they're a professor reach out to them don't be afraid to say hey dr peters i'm really interested in your work do you have a few minutes to talk um and and going down that road if you can see the the website i'm still on the about page and i did notice that uh, your newest addition is is jenna here who mm -hmm. just uh, uh was added as well uh, you have a lot of different services, you know, you, you look at the website and you look at all these different services. And my question to you is, uh, how is Summit Center different than your competitors or a different practice? Here's your time to kind of sell the Summit Center for me uh, and, and our audience. Well, I feel like from a professional perspective, the goal and mission was always in terms of the business was to create that community-based multidisciplinary group in a private practice model. So um, we can focus on the work and doing the, but, but besides following, you know, our ethical and legal um, and practice guidelines, we wouldn't be tied down with a bunch of the other bureaucracies that unfortunately that you have to, and that I've spent plenty of time doing in my career. We are always collaborating. So for, and this is for both sides, professional and for client. So, um, you know, we've been doing it more virtually um, and hybrid like since COVID, but there's a lot of us always around. Hey, can I talk to you about this case? We have in-services, um, we have case consultation. So we're always growing. We're always reaching out to 15, maybe 20 people. Hey, I need some more information on this. Hey, I'm dealing with this, any ideas? So you have, even though you're working with generally one practitioner, you have a team of heads behind you for the families. And on our informed consent, we say that, you know, like you're going to have confidentiality. However, you know, we do consult um, with each other to provide you the highest quality of care. Um, from a client perspective, we just really believe in being strength-based and um, we believe in relationship. Um, we are not more powerful than you. We are not better than you. We, um, from our information and services coordinator, basically an intake coordinator to our assessment um, coordinator, to our receptionist, to our billing coordinator and operations manager, everyone is so person oriented. Um, we just, we want people come because they're in need and we want people to feel like they're at home with people who respect them. And so I would just say there's just such a humanistic way that we work with people in a collaborative strength-based way and um i'll toot the horn of our we just have phenomenal uh clinicians just phenomenal clinicians well it's a good variety as we mentioned earlier uh, a variety of education specialties that sort of stuff as well uh i'm sharing the screen on camp summit because about a year after you founded 
uh, Summit Center um, in June of 2010, the Open Camp Summit uh, in the Mirren Headlands, which is in the heart of San Francisco Bay Area, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. So tell us a little bit more about why you created an Open Camp Summit. Well, so this conversation came out of the initial conversations about Summit Center um, and that Susan um, had a close friend and colleague named Wendy who was in education and ran a lot of programs and they would run programs together down at um, Cal State San Bernardino where they both worked. And part of the reason of opening a Summit Center is gifted and twice exceptional kids um, aren't understood. We don't get trained in these profiles. And so there's a lot of misses, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of pathologizing, a lot of misdiagnosing um, or missed diagnoses. And that's why Summit Center came from. It's like, hey, we want to have a place where people know they can pick up the phone and we know a lot about your child's profile and we'll figure out more. The same thing was with summer camps is a lot of these kids, because of their being misunderstood, their quirks, you know, bright and quirky, um, their developmental asynchrony, they're really advanced in some areas, they're really not behind in other areas. Um, a lot of these parents just wait by the phone to get the phone call like, hey, this isn't working. Come get pick your kid up or kids get bullied. So we wanted to have a place where these kids could be. This was kind of our our tagline um, for kids to be with others like them and be with adults who understand them. And so that's how it started. And it was uh, it has been up until COVID. This unfortunately was the second summer we had 10 summers, I believe, and then our last two, or maybe, yeah, 10 summers in our last two, we haven't been able to do. Um, we started with, um, I think the first year was 32 kids. Most of them were gifted homeschoolers, uh, the first 32, because we have a lot of support um, from that community. And then in our largest year, we got to, I believe, 65, 66, and then we always hover somewhere in between. Um, so a magical place just a magical place of these kids getting it's like i would say it's like chewbacca i'm a big star wars fan you never see chewbacca except with one of the newer movies he had like finally gets to see another chewbacca and a lot of times these kids are like their own chewbacca is not not like they just not validated they just feel so different and so all of a sudden they're together and you just see them like just just loving it flourish and open up and everything yeah. else so yeah we keep talking about gifted and twice exceptional so one of my questions is um, how would you describe gifted or twice exceptional? And we've all heard of gifted probably years and years ago, but this twice exceptional or mm -hmm. twice exceptionality idea is, is relatively new compared to the word gifted. So in your own words, kind of tell me a little bit more about what is meant by twice exceptional. And while you're describing that, I'm going to bring something up to share with you and, and the audience. Aha, uh -huh. you've done your homework. So yeah, here is. Yeah, yeah. So here I found this and I love this. And I'm going to share this on our uh, website for your podcast, because back in 2012, you uh, uh, attended this conference, the Sing conference. And I love this piece because you provide definitions of giftedness. You not only provide definitions, but you talk about different aspects of it, common criticisms. And then this one focuses on misdiagnoses. And then characteristics of twice exceptional. And then I love this part where you started going into um, having uh, the do's and don'ts of uh, how you deal with gifted children as well. So I, I probably yeah. stole some of your thunder here, but I, uh, I was so excited right. to share this with you. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't believe it's been so long. So just a shout out for saying for people to know, supporting the emotional needs of the gifted is a national organization um, that came to be... I want to say probably late 80s, maybe, or yeah, maybe late 80s. And it was unfortunately after a highly gifted um, teenager took his life and the parents donated, uh, someone donated a lot of money to Jim Webb, who is the publisher, uh, unfortunately now deceased publisher. Um, and he was on the Donahue show uh, going way back. And it um, really talking about the, um, the emotional needs of giftedness. And so that is a wonderful organization that has a conference every year, um, educating parents, educators, anyone who will listen about the emotional needs of the gifted. Okay. So what's the gifted is quickly. People know it's for, you know, smart kids to be in smart classes. Think of it as advanced, uh, 
advanced ability in a number of one or a number of areas, academic, intellectual, could even be leadership, visual arts, performing arts, even though that's not focused on much these days, um, or potential um, for advanced cognitive potential. And there's a debate in the field, I'm just going to say it quickly here, is like, well, are you gifted if you haven't produced anything yet? You know, that's the difference kind of like gifted and talented. A talent is you're now talented at something. Gifted, you can be talented, but there are a lot of these kids, particularly a lot of the twice exceptional kids, which we'll talk about, who they're yet they're not yet talented, but they're cognitively advanced and they have advanced cognitive potential. So we can't lose those kids who don't find it when they're 10 or even find it when they're 20. Twice exceptionality. So we think of the bell curve. So on one end of the bell curve, let me do, let's see, I think it's the opposite for you if I'm doing so. So this would be your high end of the bell curve. So the high end of the bell curve is, let's say this top, often they say like the top 2%, um, eight, 95th percentile, and there's very, but let's just take the, that bell curve. So you're advanced in your cognitive ability, your visual spatial ability, your reasoning ability, your math, uh, your English. The other end of the bell curve, you have another exceptionality. You might be very, um, have a lot of challenges with attention and executive functioning, with reading, with writing, or dysgraphia, fine motor, auditory processing, visual processing, autism spectrum. Um, and usually it's not just twice exceptional. We now say thrice or multi-exceptional. So you're on both ends of the bell curve. And one of three things happen. Either your strengths outweigh your weaknesses, so you perform above average and you're frustrated, but everyone says you're fine. So you no one knows you're dyslexic or what we call stealth dyslexic or have something else or it doesn't emerge till much later, high school or college, um, or your weaknesses outweigh your strengths. So everyone's focused on you can't sit still, you can't concentrate, you don't read really well and no one can read your handwriting or you're just having trouble uh, making friends and understanding social stuff. But no one's focused on you have advanced reasoning ability and you have all of this other stuff that's being missed because we're just focusing on the problems. And a lot of times it goes, it collapses in the middle. So you have a really bright person who also has challenges, who performs at grade level and everyone says they're fine. They shouldn't get any services. They don't qualify for anything and they're miserable. They're struggling and they feel stupid. So the twice or multi-exceptional are all are a huge Many of the people in history that we know, to, you know, the Albert Einsteins, the Richard Bransons, uh, the Thomas Edisons, these are all twice exceptional people. You look at their stories, they all had trouble in school, socially, behaviorally, and they all, of course, had advanced cognitive ability. Very good description. And, and one question that I'd like to ask is I haven't asked a psychologist yet is it, it, it seems to me like a lot of the gifted or twice exceptional or multi exceptional people may or may not fall on the continuum of, of uh, Asperger's, ADHD, dyslexia, anything like that. Tell me what your perception is or what your experience is with, with some of them falling on that continuum or some others that aren't even included in those areas. So, um, so there are a lot of people who are gifted and not, don't have another exceptionality. Um, they might have what we call asynchronous development. So it's like, they might still have um, advanced reasoning, age-appropriate social skills, and maybe a little behind in, let's say, writing or something. And there's still not enough of a gap to say, okay, that's an actual other exceptionality. It's, it's that, you know, you can't be across the board high on everything as a human being. Most people aren't. With the twice exceptionality, we see lots of different categories. Um, and it also depends on, you know, what people come in because of what other people see. So the huge... A huge misdiagnosis is ADHD, um, but it also is a very common diagnosis when it fits. It's just often overdiagnosed. Um, if people are bored in school, they're going to be inattentive and check out and be fidgety. And especially a lot of the boys are really good at getting in trouble because they're just trying to stay interested. Um, we also see a lot of Asperger's ASD, both misdiagnosis and missed diagnosis because some people are like, oh, they're just quirky. And then it's like, well, they might be really bright and really quirky and we love quirky people. But as time goes on, if they have a light dose, you actually see with the older that they get that they still have these challenges that really cause problems with social interaction, um, with school, with work. Um, and so that's another big area. 
um, we see lots of dyslexics or what we call stealth dyslexics or what um, Brock and Fernette ID of the dyslexic advantage. Um, they have a wonderful organization and book have coined the phrase after working with a lot of these bright folks that you can read in the average range and still be dyslexic. But you still have all these other fundamental underlying challenges with dyslexia, slow processing speed, trouble with writing, trouble remembering rote facts, um, trouble with sequential and procedural memory, but your intelligence is off the chart. And so then you have this big discrepancy and school can be hard for you without accommodation. Um, Visual processing. Most people don't get checked visual processing. We see a lot of, you know, you go to the optometrist and it's like, okay, put your hand over here and can you see that letter? As the stimuli come closer to the developmental optometrists are looking how your eyes track. And a lot of learning issues are because of an undiagnosed visual tracking issue. And then finally, I'm gonna let you talk. Um, auditory processing. Uh, we always say if a person can't pay attention, we sometimes don't pick up unless you get an audiological exam and a good one that it's like Charlie Brown's teacher going, wah, 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 and it's like, why aren't you paying attention? Didn't you hear what I said? Right. So I'm not sure if I completely answered your question, but we see all of these different categories. You did answer uh, my question and more, and I'm sharing the screen. Uh, you're going to let me talk for a little uh, time here, too, let yeah. you catch your breath. Um, I, I noticed that you also offer this twice exceptional newsletter. And for those of you in the audience and have some families and or people that are uh, would fall into the gifted or twice exceptional, I found this very interesting and even some of the previous uh, uh, information on uh, the blog and, and other information on here, such as the YouTube channel for the twice exceptional as well, very beneficial. So uh, a good starting point to find out a little bit more about twice exceptional. In 2016, you co-founded the Parent uh, Footprint, which is a website and a blog and a podcast. And so tell me how and why you created the Parent Footprint. So um, I met a man named Paymon Fosley, who's a technologist, and he uh, told me about his idea to create... Um, he was working on his book, um, which is almost complete now. And he, his idea was to create a video training or a video experience of sitting down with, like sitting down with a psychologist with technology that you could interact with it, almost like a choose your own adventure book where um, we come, we came up with some pillars, um, of what we felt was important to, um, his term was parent footprint to leave a healthy footprint, just like a carbon footprint with a big idea of like, we need to be aware as parents, which is what the website, the podcast is all about. And with increased awareness, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our kids. And I just thought it was brilliant. Um, first the, the visual, the image and, um, I've always wanted to step into technology a little bit. There wasn't anything that I really knew about technology. Um, and so we spent a lot of weekends creating this interactive training where we have these modules. Um, and um, after a module, which can then be anywhere from like three to five minutes, I ask a question. And the question is A, B, or C. And depending on what you click, you get a different, um, a different video which is speaking more to you based on your current state of affairs. The whole idea was as you progress and as you grow and as you work on yourself, you can take the training again and choose a different response because you're feeling like you're in a different place. So the whole idea was to create this parenting revolution to have mindful and aware uh, parents. And that's where the podcast came from. Um, and that's where I've been spending a lot of time and really enjoyed going on almost five years. Um, so you know the you know the joy as a fellow podcaster, Brad. Like it's it's just really getting to speak with two wonderful people and learning from all your guests. Um, so uh, yeah, that's how that that's how that that happened. <laughs> you're you're keeping yourself very busy, and one question that comes to mind for me is. You're wearing multiple hats, psychologist, business owner. You probably did a little PR at the beginning and, and still coordinate with your PR team manager or your person as well. Um, what were some of the big challenges starting a business and what are some of the challenges existing now that you've had this business and been running all these businesses and projects? Um, 
what I'm leading up to is what are the challenges and then what advice would you give uh, students, graduate students who want to start their own practice or business? Hmm. Loaded question. Two questions almost there. <laughs> Great question. Um, I'm having like a flashes of all these experiences. So I guess I want to start by saying I've always been a naive optimist. I think I'm get, as I'm getting older, I'm much more of a realist, but a naive optimist. So I always have. So the positive aspect of that is, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, how can that go wrong? Right. right. <laughs> and and there, there's been a lot of good that's come out of that because it allows me to like, I have a vision. I want to do it. I don't have any business training. I don't like spreadsheets. Um, I, I that stuff. I was never good at that stuff in school. Um, I always went by intuition. So on the uh, so I've always trusted my intuition. Um, and it's right a lot of the time, but it also, when it comes to business and it comes to taking on expansion and taking on more overhead, um, it's not always right. Cause there's these other market factors that you can't control. Um, so I guess what I would say is like, believe in yourself and go in the direction you want to go, but you can do it in bite-sized ways. So for example, if you want to have a private practice, it doesn't cost a lot to rent one off one day a week, one afternoon a week, and you have your shingle out and then you have your website. And nowadays, you know, psychology today, like you don't even have to have your own website, but you can have your own website for, and it doesn't have to have a lot of bells and whistles. So I would say you start small. My, the, the lessons learned were sort of over expansion from a financial perspective, um, like biting off more than I could chew, or let me put it this way, creating stress that in hindsight, I didn't want to have. So what I'm really mindful of now, as we can actually continue to grow organically, um, and, you know, partially because we've been around for a long time, and partially because more and more people, unfortunately, are needing services with the pandemic, um, it's always the thought now is about how can we do this in the simplest, most cost-effective, let least stress-inducing way. Um, so what I don't want anyone to experience, which I had plenty of times experiencing over the, the years, which is extra financial stress because now you have all of the stuff you're carrying and you have these loans and you have this and that and that. and um, when you're in private practice, you can work as much as you want. When you have a team, you're reliant on that team to be able to do a certain amount of work to help cover all of the costs. Because as you grow, you need more stuff and more space and more technology and blah, blah, blah. So it's just being mindful of the all of the different factors and balances. And I still am a proponent of organic growth. Um, whenever we've tried to force grow or I've tried to force something professionally, it's never worked out. When it was organic and it seemed right with the right person at the right time, it's worked out. Very good advice. I liked uh, how you uh, summarized some of the, if you don't know the business or the PR, have somebody else do that for you, basically. And and uh, um, the organic growth is a nice uh, uh, piece of advice as well. Don't force it. You received a number of awards and recognitions. I'll, I'll share a few of them. In 2013, you received the Legacy Book Award for Raising Creative Kids. And while I'm doing this, I forgot to share my screen here. So we do that. Uh, and here is kind of a summary of, of a few of those books, Raising Creative Kids. Again, the 2013 Legacy Book Award. In 2013, you also received the CAG Distinguished uh, Service Award, CAG stands for the California Association for the Gifted uh, Award. And then a year later, you received the Independent Publisher Book Award in 2014, the Gold Medal in Psychology and the Mental Category for Make, uh, Make Your Worrier a Warrior. Nice title. I love that title. And then 2016, Alan Uwig or Ewig. Champion for Children by Aldea Children and Family Services. And then we mentioned SENG earlier, saying earlier in 2018, you were recognized as the Mental Health Professional of the Year by supporting emotional needs of gifted children as well. Um, and then now, in a couple months, um, you're coming out with a new book 
And this is the one that you worked with Gene uh, uh, Peterson on, and it's due out in October. Tell us what brought you to this book and how is this book different from your other ones? Well, th this book feels um, really meaningful because Gene, um, Dr. Gene Peterson is a retired now professor of Purdue. And when I came into the field of uh, giftedness and I went to my first national conference so long ago, you can go to these pre-conferences. And Gene um, was a co-author on one of the first books um, of counseling the gifted, having different modalities of counseling the gifted. So I read her book. She has a real systems approach. And I really liked what I read. And then here I am in this small room how many years ago, and I um, got to um, to listen to her. And I went up and I spoke with her and I introduced myself and um, had a really just nice connection. She's just this wonderful, wise soul. And um, then a couple day, a couple years later, um, she wrote a book about a lot of her students, a poetry book for the publisher who ended up being my publisher on the Warrior to Warrior books. And he asked me if I would review her book. So all of a sudden, I'm like, how am I getting to review like her book, like just this honor? And then we stayed in touch and we presented a few times together and it would be and she was always like, come on, Dan, we need to do this. Come on, Dan. You know, there's not a lot of us out there. And um, it was always the counselor on the psychologist's approach. And then she said, you know, we we talked about for years, like we got to write a book together. And then life happened and life happened. And um about three or four years ago, she said, okay, we got to write that book. And I'm like, Gene, I'm like overwhelmed. <laughs> I, I can't do this. She's like, and she just, Dan, come on, we can do this. We could do this a little bit of time. We'll each write some chapters. I'll take the lead. And, um, and then what I really got behind was, okay, I'm like, I, Gene's stuff has always remained in a lot of academia. She's like this gifted, um, counselor, writer. She trains, uh, counselors, basically, uh, in giftedness. And a lot of her stuff was always in the journals and always in the academic books. I'm like, we need to get this mainstream, mainstream, mainstream. And so then I got my energy towards, I want to get Jean's stuff out there. And then before long, I was right in there with her, although she, thank God, took the lead on it. And we're collaborating and we're writing this book together on um, who are these people? How do you find them? How do you talk to them? What do you need to know about them? Um, what are the reasons for underachievement, um, anxiety, what about anxiety, depression, um, existential questioning, um, relationships and misdiagnosis, twice exceptionality. And it just came to be. And, um, the other thing that's special about this book, cause Jean's so special. She's not only a clinician, she's done a ton of research. And so what's in the book is also her decades of here's how Here's what she's found over the years from these people. And right here, it might look a little messy, but we need to give them time. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it feels very special to uh, to do this with her. And she just turned 80. And she's, um, again, she's just this wise sage that I feel lucky to know. Well, it sounds like it. Um, I, I looked at some of her other material as well, and, and she's in the same area and always so focused on how to help and recognize, assess all of that. I'm sharing one other screen with you before uh, we end the uh, uh, podcast here. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we're going to end in, in the next minute here. I still have a couple of questions, but um, I, I found this interesting because earlier in the podcast, you mentioned how it was your goal to get together and, and, and uh, have the supper with your family. And it was difficult because you were being pulled in different directions. And your wife at the time was, was uh, working the swing shift overnight. I, I found this one interesting because this was back in April of 2021. And you, you kind of gave the story about, hey, I remember growing up and how important family dinners were into the development of children. And that was your goal as soon as you got married, but reality hit and it, you really weren't able to do that. But I liked how, um, I think one of your kids came to you and said, you know, dad, uh, we got together, even though you weren't here and, and <laughs> mom wasn't here, we were able to get together with, um, uh, friends and family or, or friends in the neighborhood. And, um, we actually had our own family dinner and, uh, that probably just set well 
and it warm hearted you yeah. right away because even though you were attempting to do that and it wasn't really successful, they still were able to pick up on the fact that, yes, this is our time to get to know, settle down, relax, slow down and just share about each other's lives. So I, I just wanted to share that because I, I really found that uh, very special. Yeah, that was. So um, what do you love most about your job? You're doing a lot of different things. What do you love most about your job? I, I think if I could tie it all together, I like the, so I like the ability to create and I like the ability, I, I mean, I like, I'm just driven by helping people like realize and achieve their potential, whatever they want for themselves and just seeing it across the board. So whether it's with my own clients or whether it's with our team, our staff, and, and just seeing like how to be involved in creative growth. Um, that's, 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 I think that what, that's what drives me the most. And also the ability, you know, something that I don't think we hit on directly, but we've been talking about it is one of the other things that drew me to psychology when I actually realized what it was, was you can go in so many different directions. And so that your own ability to keep recreating yourself. And um, that's been really important for me because I don't, I don't like to be static. I just, it just doesn't feel right for me. So I think this field and just knowing there's so much opportunity out there. We humans need people that understand humans and help. Nothing's going to get easier. Um, robots and AI is not going to take the place of um a person when it comes to this, even though there's a lot of stuff that can be helped with mental health. So yeah, just growth, creativity, and uh, so much diversity and variability. If you've seen any of our podcasts, you realize at the end, I usually ask a few fun questions and I'm going to ask you a few of them right now. What is your favorite term, principle, or theory and why? I was not prepared for this. Okay. Um, although I did hear you ask that. I just didn't. Okay. Okay. My favorite term principle theory. Um, hmm. Okay. The one that comes to me was, uh, was based on someone who was on my podcast. He's a therapist on the East coast and he wrote a book called the possibility principle. And it's based, his work is based in quantum physics. He's taking quantum physics and brought it into his counseling. And so the idea that at any given moment, anything is possible. Love that. Okay. I was, I was glancing at my other screen here. I was trying to find that podcast, but I, you were too quick. So I'll, I'll move <laughs> on. What's, uh, what's the most important thing that you've learned in your life? Hmm. These small questions, really small mm -hmm. questions. Um, hmm. Okay, I, it's the most important thing I've learned is to is to show up being an authentic person and. Yeah, show up being an authentic person. And in my work and in my writing of the warrior to warrior, based a little lot little of my own experience with anxiety as well, is say is like to stay present. Because all the stuff that's in our head and all the worries and the what ifs, they have not happened yet. So it's really to show up authentically and to stay in the present and to ward off all of the future tripping. Very good advice. And, and I'm going to add something to that. Before we have cell phones and all these laptops and computers and everything else, basically a computer in your hand, you know, I grew up without having a cell phone as a kid. And um, you're almost forced to be present. And nowadays, with especially take COVID out of the equation. Yeah. Even the technology, you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh my gosh, I got to check emails. I got to check uh, my social media. I got to do all of this stuff. Back then, we didn't even, you know, fathom thinking about that. So 
very good advice on on staying present and in, in, in the uh, in the time. Um, if you could, if you had any, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Those are very different. Um, okay, I'm gonna um, maybe it's gonna combine those two. I think, like the me, the ideal. My wife and I have been talking quite a bit about this. Um, the ideal would be to go to lots of places to impact lots of people, um, and to be a part of a program that incorporated what we now know about gut health, the biome, the human biome, um, nutrition, uh, community, and with mental health. Like to have a completely holistic approach beyond mental health in our field uh, to helping people heal and grow. Very good. I, I've had two other podcast interviews. Uh, my recent one, just before this one, she was very much into holistic and looking at mental and physical health together because based on Eastern uh, Orthodox and East, Eastern procedures and, and techniques, you have to look at both the physical and the mental because they are intertwined. So very good answer. The final one that I have for you is, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up in this podcast and you covered a lot of ground um i think the, the only thing the thing that comes to me just i guess on top of the questions that you just asked me is just for people to um have hope and optimism um and again, I think it goes back to this possibility principle, anything is possible. And I think we need to believe that anything is possible in any given moment. And I firmly believe that if you vision something for yourself um, and put energy towards it, um, you can make it happen. Very good last words of uh, uh, advice. I really appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and experience with us, Dan. Thanks again for sharing your story with us. Uh, I will uh, follow you on social media. I love all the work that you're doing and, and what the Summit uh, Center is doing as well. Thanks again for your time. Thanks so much, Brad. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.